Welcome again to Exploring the Scriptures presentation on Christians and the Gospel with Dr. Ron Bartholomew. Here now is Dr. Bartholomew. Hi folks. We're going to continue our study of Christian history today. Especially we're going to look at the, the ministry of Martin Luther and uh, the things that he did while he was uh, trying to figure out what was going on with the prophecy. Well, we're grateful for Martin Luther and all that he did. We cannot look to him for a, a source of truth. He was part of the Reformation, but not part of the Restoration. So, with us, I remind you to watch Golden Gem, to listen to Golden Gems Radio, Golden Gems Radio, and uh, to to, to uh, look to the past. Uh, we're grateful for this opportunity to do this today, and we'll, we're going to start right now. The vernacular translations of the Bible were issued and read by increasing numbers. As men studied the scriptures, they re-evaluated their religion. After freeing their imagination from prevailing definitions of tradition and authority, many undermined some of the teachings of the Church Fathers, the decisions of some of the general councils, and the decrees of popes, replacing these sources of doctrine with a single norm of faith, the Holy Scriptures. So, the Bible became the the thing that they based they based the present Reformation on, and Martin Luther is going to be the, the key player here. If you look at medieval solidarity, you can see that uh, the 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 church is growing, but it's also having some problems as well. Moreover, the direction given by emperors, councils, and higher clergy was replaced by the influence of countless proprietors of churches and feudal lords who were unable to advance uniformity. <laughs> the decay of the Roman Empire and the consolidation of the Germanic states in Europe truly loosened the growing cohesion of the medieval church. Then when feudalism was replaced by the rise of national states, a strong feeling of the independence of the national churches and their close connection with the state developed in each country. So, as nation-states evolved, the church went to the state instead of to individuals. Medieval Christianity, therefore, consisted of divergent aspects of religion, including various theological systems, conflicting practices, in administering the sacraments and local variations of belief in the number of practices that should be classified as sacraments. We're going to see a lot of that development today. <clears throat> One outgrowth of this was the increasing feelings of nationalism, people's pride in their country and allegiance to their peculiar institutions grew, precipitating dissatisfaction with the power exercised by the Pope and the higher clergy in purely secular matters. Some concluded that the Pope interfered with the progress of their nation. As the years passed, primary allegiance of the majority in some countries shifted from the church to the state. That is the key. With the development of nation states, the allegiance shifted from the church to the state, so the state becomes the primary thing people have allegiance to. At the end of the 15th century, the wealth of the church was considered enormous and vast sums were pouring from various parts of Europe into the treasury of the Pope, who was considered by some 
a foreigner in a foreign state or being removed when the higher clergy were transferred to another realm. So the bottom line is always the bottom line. It's always money. And people can see money going to the Pope and say their nation, and they were troubled by that. In the age of mercantilism, this movement of specie gold and silver out of a nation was regarded as impeding the growth and independence of the country. At the same time, economic-minded politicians recognized the advantages of creating a national church so that the wealth flowing to the Pope could be diverted to the treasuries of the state. Simple math problem. At the same time, the Reformation was also a reaction against certain beliefs and practices regarded as unscriptural innovations in Catholicism. Yeah. The Reformers rejected the Roman Catholic concept of purgatory, place or condition of temporary punishment for unremitted sin, limbo, place or state of unbaptized infants and others who were kept from heaven, treasury of merits, the collection of the good works of Christ and saints held by the church that could be drawn on, somewhat like money is withdrawn from a bank, and indulgences, not forgiveness of sin, but the relief of the punishments associated with those sins. Drawn from the treasury of merits, being especially critical of the abuses associated with a distribution of indulgences. As particularly as people read the scriptures, they could see that these things were not in the scriptures. And so they're wondering why the Catholic Church has all these things that did not exist in Christianity. The method of obtaining indulgences varied, but during the immediate pre-Reformation period, many popes expedited the raising of funds by increasing the ease of obtaining and at the same time increasing the value of indulgences. So... Uh, they're turning sin into a business. And the more sins you committed, the more dollars you could buy, the more the better the church would prosper. Sometimes popes declared that by simply viewing relics of the saints and contributing simultaneously to the church, one could receive a promissory note for reduced punishment in purgatory. So essentially, the popes <clears throat> are selling sin or the ability to commit sin and the, the 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 resulting things that came from it by selling these these uh, uh, promissory notes for the reduced punishment and purgatory. Perhaps significantly for the Reformation, the development of an obsession with purgatory was not uniform within Europe. It seems to have been the North rather than the Mediterranean area, perhaps most intense, intensively. The Atlantic French from Galicia on the Spanish Atlantic seaboard round as far as Denmark and North Germany, which became most concerned with prayer as a ticket out of purgatory. The significance of this contrast is that the purgatory-centered faith of the North encouraged an attitude to salvation in which the sinner, lay or clerical, piled up reparations for sin. Action was added to action in order to merit years off purgatory. I don't think it's very hard for you to see why this is a problem. It was possible to do something about one's salvation. That was precisely the doctrine which Martin Luther was to make his particular target after 1517. So the difference between attitudes to salvation in Northern and Southern Europe may explain why Luther's first attack on some of the more outrageous outcrops 
of the soul prayer industry had so much more effect in the North than in the South. Because they were doing it more there. He was telling Northern Europeans that some of the devotions which most deeply satisfied them and convinced them that they were investing in an easier passage to salvation were nothing but clerical confidence tricks. Wow, that's quite an accusation, even though it's true. This message was of much less interest or resonance in the Mediterranean lands, which had not paid so much attention to the purgatory industry. finger made raw by the flame will torment you throughout the night. Is it not so? Imagine then, your entire body burning. Not for one sleepless night. Not for a week. But for all eternity. Are we to be spared the fires of damnation on the judgment day? Tonight, your Pope, the Vicar of Christ, sends you a gift, a gift to save you from such fires, a special indulgence granted for the building of St. Peter's Church in Rome, where the bones of the Apostles lie mouldering. Exposed to wind and rain, desecrated by wild animals. Take heed the words of your Holy Father who says, Lay a stone for St. Peter's, and you lay the foundation for your own salvation and happiness in heaven. How? With this indulgence. When? Tonight. And only tonight. Seek the Lord while he is near. Here is your raft. Take hold. In heaven there is a treasure chest filled with merit. Merit from Christ Jesus, the Virgin Mary and the saints who, through their holy lives, have merit to spare for us poor sinners in need. Tonight, that treasury is open to you. Do you not hear their voices? The screaming voices? Your deceased parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, screaming, beloved child, beloved child. Because for a few coins, you can rescue them from their punishments and pain. Listen. Open your ears. Father calling to son. Mother to daughter. When a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. God-fearing man. 
have a coin for Christ. Yes. <clears throat> Gentle mother, when the time comes, make certain your crippled child can run to Jesus. These learned monks are standing by to write down your name or the name of a loved one, dead or alive, on this, your passport to the celestial joys of paradise. by the Archbishop of Mainz. Where did you get this? Jutebog. I bought it in the church. It's just paper. These words mean... It's no good. You must put your trust in God's love. Save your money to feed Greta. Hmm? So um, Martin Luther with others was teaching that that you couldn't be saved with these uh, things uh, even though the church was teaching that you could be and so it was a horrible horrible time for the for the church to to uh, um, to uh, survive as a church to too many for people and people are not really getting anything but these uh, uh, grievances in return, and, and uh, Martin Luther was was so disgusted with he couldn't he couldn't take it, so that's why he said that they had to, they they were they were not not helpful. Okay, if I can figure out where I'm at. In addition, reformers rejected the Catholic notion that having priests say masses for them improved their mortal life or reduce punishment and purgatory for deceased persons. They also typically rejected five of the seven Roman Catholic sacraments, penance, confirmation, marriage, extreme unction, and holy orders while retaining reverence 
for baptism and communion. The Reformers also condemned the method in which the Catholics venerated relics. There developed a great rivalry between religious centers, religious leaders in one area attempting to secure a greater collection than could be gathered in another region. A lucrative business centered on the locating and selling of former possessions of the saints, something which the saints had touched or the body of one considered to have lived a holy life. As the practice developed, the bodies of martyrs were uncovered, dismembered, and the fragments of finger, arm, leg, rib, or skull distributed. Each part of the body was supposed to possess a supernatural virtue, a power to heal, or some other power which would benefit man. However, as the centuries passed, the number of false relics also, and of course, increased. been to Rome. Did you buy an indulgence? No. I did. For a silver florin, I freed my grandfather from purgatory. For twice that, I could have sprung grandma and uncle Marcus too, but, but I didn't have the funds, so they had to stay in the hot place. As for myself, the priests assured me that by gazing at sacred relics, I could cut down my time in purgatory. Luckily for me, Rome had enough nails from the Holy Cross to shoe every horse in Saxony. <laughs> but there are relics elsewhere in Christendom. Eighteen out of twelve apostles are buried in Spain. <laughs> and yet here in Wittenberg, we have the pick of the crop. Bread from the Last Supper. Milk from the Virgin's breast. A form that pierced Christ's brow on Calvary and 19,000 other bits of sacred bone. All authenticated sacred relics. Even John Tetzel himself. Inquisitor of Poland and Saxony. Seller of indulgences extraordinary. Connoisseur of relics envies our collection. <laughs> to possess them for a single night, he would willingly surrender five years of his earthly life. <laughs> or 500 years in purgatory. <laughs> the reformers also reacted against the unscriptural bases and abuses which had crept into the practice of venerating the saints. Although the Roman Catholic Church did not teach that the saints should be worshipped, only venerated, members of the church were worshipping the apostles, early Christian leaders, and others designated as saints. Catholics made the saints magical instruments for the healing of the sick and for their material advancement. The veneration precipitated excessive ritualistic consecration of churches, wasteful pilgrimages, and numerous other superstitious practices. Simony, priestcraft buying a church office, and pluralism, holding multiple offices simultaneously, were also recognized by the reformers as abuses 
which plagued the dominant religion of Western Europe. Today, Catholics admit that the buying and selling of church offices was a major evil of the Middle Ages. Martin Luther, first a monk, then an ordained Catholic priest, and finally a university professor of scripture and theology. Through his study of the Bible, he became convinced that non-scriptural innovations in the Catholic Church, particularly the selling of indulgences and the paid viewing of relics for remission of sins and suspension of penalties in purgatory. He held correctly that repentance required a broken heart and a contrite spirit, and that only God, Christ, could forgive sin and bestow remission of sin, not the Pope. As a parish priest in the village church, he was responsible for the spiritual welfare of his flock. They were procuring indulgences as he had once done himself. Rome was not the only place in which such favors were available, for the popes delegated to many churches in Christendom the privilege of dispensing indulgences, and the castle church at Wittenberg was the recipient of a very unusual concession, granting full remission of all sins. The collection of relics had as its nucleus a genuine thorn from the crown of Christ, certified to have pierced the Savior's brow. The collection from this inherited treasure that the catalog illustrated by Lucas Krennic in 1509 listed 5,005 particles to which were attached indulgences calculated to reduce purgatory to 1,443 years. By 1,443 years. You could really reduce it a lot. The collection included one tooth of St. Jerome of St. Chrysostom, four pieces of St. Bernard, six, and of St. Augustine, four, of Our Lady, four hairs, three pieces of her cloak, four from her girdle, and seven from the veil sprinkled with the blood of Christ. The relics of Christ included one piece from his swaddling clothes, thirteen from his crib, one wisp of straw, one piece of gold of the gold brought by the wise men, and three of the myrrh, one strand of Jesus' beard, one of the nails driven into his hands, one piece of bread eaten at the Last Supper, one piece of the stone on which Jesus stood to ascend into heaven, and one twig <laughs> of Moses' burning bush. <laughs> by 1520, the collection had mounted to 19,013 holy bones. Those who viewed these relics on the designated day and made the stipulated contributions might receive from the Pope indulgences for the reduction of purgatory, either for themselves or others, to the extent of 1,902,202 years and 270 days. How do you like that? These were the treasures made available on the day of all saints. Three times during the sermons of the year, 1516, Luther spoke critically of these indulgences. The third of these occasions was Halloween, the eve of all saints. Luther spoke moderately and without certainty on all points, but on some he was perfectly assured. No one, he declared, can know whether the remission of sins is complete 
because complete remission is granted only to those who exhibit worthy contrition and confession, and no one can know whether contrition and confession are perfectly worthy. To assert that the Pope can deliver souls from purgatory is audacious. If he can do so, then he is cruel not to release them all. But if he this, possesses this ability, he is in a position to do more for the dead than for the living. The purchasing of indulgences in any case is highly dangerous and likely to induce complacency. Indulgences can remit only those private satisfactions imposed by the church and may easily militate against interior penance, which consists in true contrition, true, true confession, and true satisfaction in spirit. So we definitely see that Martin Luther was headed the right direction. He at least felt like repentance should be Tradition from sin, not just buying things. Luther's teaching struck at the root of medieval Catholicism. Indulgences served not merely to dispense the merits of the saints, but also to raise revenues. They were the bingo of the 16th century. The device proved so lucrative that it was speedily extended to cover the construction of churches, monasteries, and hospitals. The Gothic cathedrals were financed in this way. Nevertheless, the church today readily concedes that the indulgence traffic was a scandal, so much so that a contemporary preacher phrased the requisites as three, contrition, confession, and contribution. When I say the church today, I don't mean the Church of Jesus Christ of the Holy Saints, I mean the Catholic Church. Ultimately, the peaceful reform from within the church sought by Christian humanists gave way to the more violent reformation led from the outset by Martin Luther of the 16th century. His life itself is somewhat of a contradiction. He was both rash and uncompromising, yet tender and emotional. He was also a very anxious person over his own salvation. His mental anguish became even greater, he tells us, as he came to fear and hate a God who would prescribe requirements that were impossible for humans to achieve, then condemn them for their failure. It doesn't sound much like God to me, does it to you? No. Eventually, as he focused attention more on Christ through prolonged study and reflection, he underwent what he called his tower experience, and the pieces of his theological puzzle began falling into place. It's important to note. The primary issue with Luther was not moral, but theological, whether man is saved by sacramental works of the church or by the grace of God. Others have attacked the life, he is reported to have said, I attack the doctrine. The heart of Luther's teachings about Christ was the atonement and resurrection. If God's wrath is to be taken from me, and I am to attain grace and forgiveness, he explained in words not unlike those used in Amulek's sermon in the book of Alma, this blessing must be earned from him by someone. For God cannot remove punishment and wrath unless sin has been paid for and satisfaction has been redeemed. Now no one was able to do away with the eternal irreparable damage except the eternal person of God's Son himself. And this he did by stepping into our place, taking our sins upon himself, 
and answering for them as if he were guilty of them himself. Yet he did not completely abandon a belief in good works. He taught that by virtue of this faith, the believer is subject to no one but God. Yet as a result of it, he becomes the servant of all through love and service. That is simply a beautiful sentence. Luther's many books, lectures, sermons, and letters reveal his devotion to the Word of God and his commitment to do God's will. Another crucial feature of Luther's teaching is the primacy of the Bible as the Word of God and the sole source of Christian authority. In Scripture, the Word of God is revealed to mankind, and the Word is supreme, replacing all authority claimed by the Roman Church. This was not only treason that he's committing here, it's also an excommunicable offense. To make the Bible more available and understandable, Luther set to work translating it into German. Perhaps one of his greatest achievements. Posterity has confirmed Luther's own judgment that this German Bible, this is not praise for myself, but the work praises itself, is so good and precious that it's better than all other versions, Greek and Latin. The prophet Joseph Smith commented 300 years later that it was the most of nearly correct translation and corresponds nearest to the revelations which God has given to me for the last 14 years. And so during the novel period, Joseph didn't carry on an English Bible, he carried on a German Bible because he believed the German Bible was more correct. For a while it appeared that the passionate appeal of Luther and his followers might join forces with the more moderate reforms advocated by Erasmus and the Christian humanists to produce a genuine reformation of the church. Didn't happen. But that did not happen. Luther was soon so caught up in the emotional energy of religious debate and theological controversy that he lost sight of the goal of Christian unity. His rediscovery of God in the Bible led directly to an assertion of absolute biblical authority, a dogma no less rigid than the Catholic's dependence on relics and priests, which he also opposed. In Luther's theology, man is devoid of free will, diametrically opposed to the position of Erasmus and other Christian humanists, and cannot produce works worthy of merit. We would also say that his position was extreme. We're not devoid of free will. That's what we have is free will. And we can produce works worthy of merit. Salvation comes as a free gift of God given to whomever he chooses. Luther's followers reacted in various ways to his initiatives. Some caught the spirit of his vision and helped him push forward. Others thought his theology was reckless and dangerous. Well, some resented his conservatism, insisting that his break with Rome needed to be more complete to have any meaning at all. The most revealing and costly separation, however, was from the Christian humanists. Erasmus applauded Luther's initial reforming zeal, but it soon became apparent that there were basic and irreconcilable differences between the two. Disturbed by the dogmatism of Luther's doctrine of grace, Erasmus published an essay on free will in which he called attention to the rigidity of Luther's assertions on human depravity and suggested a more moderate attitude while allowing the operation of free will in the process of salvation through both faith and works. 
a very theological document <clears throat> on free will attacks Luther's position that we cannot uh, do anything but go to God for our sins and we, we, we can't, we, do, we have no free will, we, we, we do not have the ability to overcome them. Luther rejected Erasmus's treatise and he became even more dogmatic in his statements on human depravity, declaring the total absence of free will. Which we do not agree with. It was obvious after 1525 that the moral reform advocated by Erasmus did not fit with the theological revolution of Luther and other evangelical leaders. Zwingli, who favored reform but also advocated the union of church and state, also refuted the idea of free will. On September the 1st, 1524, Dasodius Erasmus of Rotterdam, a Roman Catholic apologist, published a work entitled A Diatribe Concerning Free Will. In this work, he explained his meaning of free choice by saying, we mean a power of the human will by which a man can apply himself to things which lead to eternal salvation or turn away from them. Martin Luther, the German reformer, responded with on the enslaved will or the bondage of the will. Luther maintained the full Augustinian position against the semi-Pelagian position of Erasmus. It will be difficult to overstate the significance of this book. Luther considered it to be his most important work because it spoke to the issues that went to the very heart of what it was to be a Christian. Dr. B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton theologian, called the bondage of the will the manifesto of the Protestant Reformation. Luther's book drew a line in the sand between the Roman Catholic view of justification and the Reformed view. The debate that followed became known as the monogistic, synergistic controversy, and all the great and Protestant reformers maintained Luther's position. When Erasmus wrote his diatribe on free will, he was writing this against Martin Luther. The church had really knew that Luther was making some inroads, and so they wanted the greatest continental humanist to, to take aim at Luther. Erasmus hesitated for a long time, but finally he found what he thought he could conscientiously focus on, and that was Luther's recapture of Augustinian thought that we are absolutely and utterly dependent upon the sovereign working of God and that we have nothing to contribute to our own salvation. And so in this book, Erasmus opted for a view of salvation that says that God offers us grace, but we still have some elements of freedom within us, within us by which we can either choose this grace or reject this grace. And it is our choice that God rewards then with salvation. Erasmus's main thesis in his treatment of the will, this diatribe on the will, is that man has the ability to initiate the relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. He has the ability within himself to believe and through that faith then access all that goes with faith in justification and reconciliation with God. Dr. Haskell explains the semi-Pelagian view of synergism. Synergism comes from a compound word in Greek, together, working together, 
and it basically teaches that man and God cooperate in the initiation of faith, that man does his part, God does his part, and so it's a cooperative work. The prefix sin means together with, or at the same time, and is used in words like synchronism. Ergos is a Greek word for work. In theological terms, synergism refers to divine and human cooperation. In other words, God and man work together to bring about man's salvation. For it is written, it is God that works in a man both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Martin Luther saw this little more than works-based salvation, dressed up in evening clothes. Luther believed the semi-Pelagian view expressed by Erasmus denied original sin, the full impact the fall had on man. Instead of being dead in his trespasses and sins, man was only wounded, according to Erasmus, and therefore could help himself by helping God. Luther understood Erasmus's view made the grace of God a reward for our faith. In other words, man believes the gospel, and as a result of his good work, God gives him grace. And no matter how you slice it, in the end, man deserves some of the credit and glory for his salvation. And so it was the glory of God that was at stake in this view of salvation, according to Luther. Against this synergistic view of Erasmus, Luther believed to be born again or born from above was monogistic. Mono is the Greek word for one, or meaning alone, and is the prefix for words like monotheism, the belief in one God. Monogism, then, was the belief that the new birth or regeneration was the work of God alone, because man was dead in trespasses and sins. It was God, and only God, that brought man back to life, sending his spirit to quicken or make alive and regenerate and resurrect a man from his spiritual death. It was God, and only God, that brought man back to life. It may be helpful at this point to briefly explain that the terms born again and what we deem as salvation or justification are not synonymous terms. Many modern-day Christians equate the two. Luther emphatically taught that fallen man does not have faith in order to be born again, but that man is born again by the Spirit and the Word, and as a result, has faith. Luther rightly understood that when the Bible describes the condition of man in sin, it is a desperate condition. Man in sin is not just sick, he is dead. A sick man can help himself a little bit, but a dead man needs a supernatural, miraculous work of grace to bring him back to life. Luther recognized that, and that's why in his bondage on the will, he considered this to be the most important, significant work that he did, the most important book he ever wrote. And it's also why in the conclusion of that book, he thanks Erasmus for writing against his view and, and commending the freedom of the will. He says, Erasmus, you of all my opponents have really seen the issue. This is the hinge on which all else turns. Luther understood that it's not enough to advocate sola fide, faith alone. 
But sola fide also is dependent upon sola gratia, grace alone. And the faith which we exercise in Jesus Christ is itself the gift of God. And it is produced in us by the work of the Spirit. When I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and was converted from Christ to Christ, I could hardly read. It was through reading the Bible that I learned to read and then other Christian literature. I read Luther's work, The Bondage of the Will, in 1974 and can confirm that Luther was correct in his assessment of the bondage of the will. Had not God chosen me to obtain salvation by Jesus Christ and had I not experienced the new birth, I would never have turned from my sins, understood the Bible or followed Christ. I tell my story in my book, Converted on LSD Trip, be it strict to particular Baptist. So there we have the the big debate when we say by grace we say by our will and uh, the truth of the matter is we're saved by uh, grace and our will not just grace alone and so we don't agree with Luther we, we, we rather agree with uh, Rasmus but Rasmus was defeated by Luther and and, uh, and uh, was not was not brought forward to the to, to the to the it would take the registration to do it. And that's what that's where we're at right now. Took the registration to, to bring it to pass. In the end, Luther rejected everyone else and was rejected by them as well. Henry VIII, the papacy, Erasmus, etc. He had his two closest allies exiled because, inspired by his reforms, one believed in the need for a restoration of New Testament Christianity and a lay unpaid ministry and the other because he believed and taught the need for the gifts of the Spirit and modern, current revelation. Uh, all the things we believe in were the things that Luther rejected his, his help from. Luther, forever contrary, dogmatically asserted the need for a paid clergy and the union of the church and state. As far as the gifts of the Spirit and revelation were concerned, since he himself had never received a revelation or any manifestation of the Holy Spirit, he rejected such notions in favor of the revelation of past prophets and apostles in the scriptures. Interestingly and significantly for the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Luther provided an allowance for the illegal plural marriage of German prince-turned-Lutheran Philip of Hesse, based on the fact that this practice was observed by Old Testament patriarchs without any manifestation of divine pleasure. Wow. In the end, Luther's absolute devotion to the biblical text as the seat of authority defined the Protestant Reformation. Luther's hallmark reforms include he convinced much of Germany and Scandinavia, one, of the external abuses of the Catholic Church, including and especially indulgences and the authority of the popes. Two, to reduce the sacraments from seven to two, only baptism and the Eucharist were retained. Three, of his theology which centered on the role of scripture, faith, and grace, which are still central to Protestant theology today. Four, the mass, that the Mass was corrupt and contemptible. He completely reformed and replaced the Catholic canonical Mass with a worship service devoted to Scripture, the Eucharist, 
which all congregants were allowed to partake, and congregational singing, perhaps his greatest innovation. 5. That the monastic orders, monks and nuns, were not in keeping with Scripture, which led to the demise of hundreds of cloisters, and that 6. The celibacy was non-scriptural, and that marriage and family were ordained of God. He himself, along with many other former priests, monks, and nuns married and had families, which he championed. Additional Contributions 1. He translated the Old and New Testaments into German. Some argue this was his greatest accomplishment. 2. The Augsburg Confession in 1530, with the support of several local princes, the movement he initiated labeled Lutheranism, defied the entire Roman Catholic Church, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, and effectively put what would eventually be seen as the death nail to the Holy Roman Empire. So we see that Martin Luther did a lot of great things. He was mixed up on some key doctrinal points, but he, he made some great accomplishments. We're very grateful for him. Next week we'll continue our study with Zwingli and the Reformation, but this week we're going to end with Martin Luther. Well, I remember just when that Martin Luther was, in fact, I think he was raised by God to do some great things. He did miss the boat on doctrinally, but he uh, he did a lot of other things that were good, and we'll continue to stay the at the continued progression of the the Reformation next week. I'm so grateful for the opportunity I had to share this with you. I say in the name of Jesus Christ, Amen. Thank you again for joining us today with another segment with Dr. Ron Bartholomew with his insightful review of Christians and the Gospel. This podcast is presented through the facilities of Golden Gems Radio. We invite you to join us on the internet at www.goldengems.net, where you will find presented each week a review of the music and career of one of the great musical artists from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, when music was music in the golden days of radio. Please join us again next week with another episode on the Christians and the Gospel with Dr. Ron Bartholomew.